بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله this is lesson 66 and we've just finished talking about the return of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to Medina from the valley of Badr and we've talked about how the prisoners were treated in Medina and how they were ransomed and we were telling a few stories about some of those captives and what they experienced there in Medina and last week we ended that discussion with the story of Sayyida Zainab bint Muhammad radiallahu anha the daughter of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam whose husband Abu al-As ibn Rabi' was captured at Badr we told the story about how he was to be let go and how the money was returned with the understanding that he would release his wife Sayyida Zainab to make her way to Medina and we told that story about how she was held up a bit how she tried to escape with Kinana and how they attacked or they tried to attack resulting in her falling off the camel and having this miscarriage and we know that from the account in the seerah she made the hijrah one month after Badr there's one story however that we did not tell regarding another captive and this captive his name is going to come up again and again and again in Mecca and in Medina and that captive's name is Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib he's a Muslim right? he's a Muslim but Al-Abbas was still in Mecca and he went out with Quraysh to the valley of Badr to those plains and was there during the hostilities and he was captured and taken as a prisoner what's going on here what gives this is the story we'll tell now Abbas was a Muslim however what we can glean from the narrations is that he remained in Mecca he had certain financial interests there in Mecca and his Iman was still developing it was still growing and when he was captured his Islam was not known to the Muslims as this obvious fact and when he mentioned that he is a Muslim we see the Prophet Sallallahu dealt with him according to the outward and the context in which he found himself in which is among the Quraysh, among the fighters of Quraysh at Badr. So we have some narrations here and this is important to discuss because his name comes up again and again. And we say radiallahu anhu, right, even at this stage. One narration says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was unable to sleep because while in Medina, while trying to sleep after his return, he was unable to sleep because he heard the moans of Al-Abbas. 
Why was he moaning? He was moaning because he was complaining that the ropes were too tight on him. He was a captive. And the ropes were too tight on him, according to one narration. Another narration says that when he was captured, some of the Ansar were intent on killing him. But the Prophet ﷺ got wind of this intention on the part of some of the Ansar. And he sent Umar to go and secure his release so that they wouldn't do him any harm. Umar goes to Al-Abbas and he says to him, become a Muslim. This shows you that his Islam was not so obvious. Umar says to him, become a Muslim. For your Islam, you becoming Muslim, is more beloved to me than my own father becoming Muslim. And I see that the Prophet ﷺ would be extremely pleased with you becoming Muslim. This shows you that it wasn't an obvious fact at the time of his capture that Abbas was a Muslim. So the Prophet ﷺ dealt with him according to the zahir, the outward reality in which he found himself in. So when Al-Abbas was captured, the Prophet ﷺ put a price of 400 dinars for his ransom. When you look at the captives and the ransom prices, you see that the highest price was for Abbas's freedom. It was 400 dinars, and this was the highest because he was a very wealthy man. One narration we find in the Sira works says that the Prophet ﷺ said to his uncle Abbas, Ransom yourself. Ransom yourself. And Abbas says to the Prophet ﷺ, I was a Muslim before this. I was forced to come out here. I was a Muslim. But I was forced to come out. The tribal pressure and him being a somewhat new Muslim, he came out due to this pressure. He's telling him, I was already a Muslim. I didn't come out here as an idol worshiper to fight you. I was forced. I didn't want to participate in this. So the Prophet ﷺ says, Allah knows best about your Islam. If it is as you say that you are actually a Muslim, then Allah will reward you. So ransom yourself and the two sons of your brothers, meaning Nawfal and Aqil, and ransom your ally Utbah ibn Amr. So he's saying to him, not only must you pay to ransom yourself, but also pay the ransom for the two sons of your brothers, your two nephews, Nawfal and Aqil, and pay for the ransom of your ally, one of the tribal allies, uh, Utbah ibn Amr. It's a lot of money. A lot of money. So Al-Abbas, he says, Ya Rasulullah, are you going to leave me to beg for as long as I live? Meaning, are you going to demand this ransom for not just myself, but these others, such that if I pay it, I will be penniless, I will be broke, and I will be left to beg from others? He's basically saying, there's no way I can afford this. There's no way I can afford to pay my own ransom and the ransom of the others. I don't have that kind of money. So the Prophet ﷺ says to Al-Abbas, where is the gold? Where is the gold? And Abbas 
He says, what gold? What are you, what are you talking about? What gold? And the Prophet ﷺ says, the gold that you and your wife, Um Fadl, buried. You said to her, if I'm killed, this money is for my sons, Fadl, Abdullah, and Qutham. What's going on here? Abbas, he says, Wallahi ya Rasulullah, ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad Rasulullah. I bear witness to this reality because no one other than me and Um Fadl knew about that gold that I buried. No one has told you about this gold but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's a believer, he's a Muslim, but he's a new Muslim in the sense that his faith is still growing. He had financial ties keeping him there and he was basically forced to come out. When he's told to ransom, he's not saying how much money he really has. He's not talking about the money he has buried. That was a secret between him and his wife. To be used in the event that he's ever killed, that money was to go to his three sons. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed that hidden reality to him. And he disclosed that to Abbas. And Abbas knew that he had no excuse. He had the money to pay for it. It's just buried. So he, used, he agreed. And he ransomed himself. He ransomed his two nephews. And he ransomed his ally. And this story between the Prophet ﷺ and Abbas in the ransom is mentioned in the Qur'an in Surah Al-Anfal. Because remember the Prophet ﷺ said to him, when Abbas says, I'm already a Muslim, he said, Allah knows best about your Islam. If it is as you say, then Allah will reward you. So he's going to pay this money even though he's Muslim. That money goes to benefit the ummah. So either way, he, he's going to receive a reward for that money that he's paying because it's benefiting others. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed about this incident between Abbas and the Prophet In Surah Al-Anfal, which is this great exposition of what was going on before, during, and after Badr, Allah ta'ala says, addressing the Prophet Ya ayyuhan nabi, قُلْ لِمَنْ فِي أَيْدِيكُمْ مِنَ الْأَسْرَى إِنْ يَعْلِمِ اللَّهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ خَيْرًا يُؤْتِكُمْ خَيْرًا مِمَّا أُخِذَ مِنْكُمْ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ وَاللَّهُ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ O Prophet, tell the captives in your custody, if Allah finds goodness in your hearts, He will give you better than what has been taken from you. And He will forgive you, for Allah is all forgiving and most merciful. This is addressing that situation between Al-Abbas and the Prophet ﷺ. So the conclusion is that Abbas was a Muslim. He was a Muslim at Badr, but his Iman had to grow. He would come to play a very important role in Mecca, giving valuable intelligence to the Muslims before the Battle of Uhud. And there's more to his story. And we're going to see him come up later in the seerah. But this is a captive that we didn't talk about last week. And we talk about him now because it ties in with what was going on in Mecca in the aftermath of Badr. 
We talked about the return of the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ to Medina victoriously. We talked about the captives and the ransom stories. What's going on in Mecca? What's going on in Mecca after this crushing defeat of the Mushrikun? Now, the first person to reach Mecca after the Battle of Badr was an individual named uh, Haysaman ibn Abdullah al-Khuzai. Al-Haysaman ibn Abdullah, he came, he was the first to get to Mecca among those surviving fighters. He returns to Mecca, he's bloodied, he's ragged, his clothes are torn, and the people see him in this state as the first one to get back. And they say, what happened? And he responded as you would expect. He said, as the Sira narration quotes, they're all slain. They were all killed. Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, Shayba ibn Rabi'ah, Abu al-Hakam ibn Hisham, Abu Jahl, Umayyah ibn Khalaf, Zam'a ibn al-Aswad, Nubayh and Munabbih ibn al-Hajjaj, Abu al-Bakhtari. They're all slain. They're all dead. They were all killed in battle. This is what he comes with. The people hearing this are absolutely shocked. How likely was it for them and their own minds, for all of these major figures to go out to Badr, all to be cut down in battle. How likely was it? For them, that was the most unlikely occurrence, that they would all go out armed to the teeth, in arrogance and pomp, and they all get cut down in battle. They were absolutely shocked. It was almost too much for them to believe. In fact, some of them didn't believe it. The shock was so great, some of them didn't even believe it, and they had to ask certain questions to confirm whether or not he's lying. So we have the narration from Safwan ibn Umayyah. Safwan ibn Umayyah is the son of Umayyah ibn Khalaf, and the Sira account says that he was sitting by the Hijr. You know the Hijr? When you go to the Kaaba, that semicircular area that you shouldn't go through, that semicircular area that marks the original foundation of the Kaaba. He was sitting by the Hijr area when news spread that all of these leaders of Quraysh were slain in battle, including his father. So he wasn't around Al-Haysaman ibn Abdullah, but he, the news traveled very fast. He didn't believe it. He said, if this person is speaking the truth, if he's sane, then ask him about me. Ask him what happened to me in the battle. Was he in the battle? He wasn't there. He wasn't in the battle. But he wants to see is if this person is sane or insane. Because in his mind, if Al-Haysa man is insane, he'll just put any name in that list of those slain, including his name. So Safwan told them, go ask him what happened to Safwan ibn Umayyah in the battle. And Haysaman goes, I saw his father and I saw his brother when they were slain, but not, not Safwan. So this confirms to Safwan that Al-Haysaman ibn Abdullah is telling the truth, that all of these people were cut down in battle. That was the first one to get back. Around the, Another person to get back somewhat early from the rest of the group was Abu Sufyan. Remember Abu Sufyan, he escaped all of this. He was unscathed. He was among the first to get back from that area. 
and we have a story about him and how his return and his information led to the death of someone who wasn't at Badr, who stayed out of Badr, but who was one of the bitterest enemies of Islam. When you hear about the great enemies of the Prophet ﷺ among Quraysh, you think Abu Jahl. What's another name that comes to mind? Abu Lahab, about whom Allah revealed an entire chapter of the Quran. Tabbat yada Abi Lahabin wa tab. Abu Lahab. What happened with Abu Lahab? Now remember that Abu Lahab didn't go to Badr. And the reason why is because it didn't really serve his interest. It was a conflict of interest because he was from Banu Hashim, the same clan as the Prophet ﷺ. He didn't want to go to Badr for this reason. But he would not escape the punishment of Allah. He would not escape the second order effects of the defeat at Badr. And this is what we glean from the narration in the seerah. So among the first to arrive after Haysaman ibn Abdullah was Abu Sufyan. He gets back to Mecca shaken. He was completely shaken from this crushing defeat. And so he goes straight to the Kaaba. And there at the Kaaba, you know, you had the old well of Zamzam. And at that well of Zamzam, you would have this large tent. People would be under this tent, away from the sun, in the shade of the tent. And they're drinking the Zamzam. This is a place where people will congregate and hang out. So Abu Sufyan gets back to Mecca. He goes straight to the Kaaba. And there in the tent near Zamzam, he sees his uncle, Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab calls out to him to ask him what happened. And he was so shocked, Abu Lahab was so shocked, he couldn't believe that Abu Jahl was killed in the way he was killed. So Abu Sufyan, he tells the story, and this is recorded in the Hadith reports. He tells, about, he tells Abu Lahab about how Abu Jahl was killed in Badr, shaken and scared. And then he talks about the other things that happened at Badr. He says to Abu Lahab, there's more. There's more to it than this. He says, we met the enemy in battle and we turned our backs and they drove us in flight or they took us as captives as they wanted to. We're running, we're trying to escape. They're capturing us. He says, however, because if you hear that, you get the impression that, oh, they were soft. They ran away in fear. Why didn't you stand up for yourself? So he says, I can't really blame them for this. I can't blame them for turning their backs and running the way they did. Because we had to face not only them, the Muslims, but also very large men on piebald horses, these very large, powerful horses that were gigantic between the heaven and the earth, he describes, and nothing could stand against them. So what he's telling Abu Lahab is, listen, it was a crushing defeat, and people ran away and were killed and many were captured. But it's not totally our fault because we're not just fighting the Muslims. We're fighting these other people. And they were humongous 
on these massive horses. These, <laughs> these, these, who is he talking about? Uh, the angels. He's talking about the angels. He's not saying angels. He's just saying these gigantic people on these large horses that were cutting us down in battle. So, again, again picture yourself there. It's the Kaaba. The sun is out. They're inside this tent near Zamzam. Abu Lahab is hearing the story. Who else is in this tent? Don't think of it as some kind of a little camping tent. This is a large Arabian tent. There's other people inside. So the hadith mentions that in the tent, at the same time this conversation is going on, is Abu Rafir. Now Abu Rafir at the time is a Muslim and he was a servant of who? Abbas. Who else is there? Now Abbas is still in Medina. He hasn't yet made it back because he has to deal with the ransom issue. But Abu Rafi' the servant of Abbas is there. And Umm Fadl, the wife of Abbas is there. So he, Abu Rafi' is there. He's carving out these cups. He's doing some woodworking, carving out cups. It's a thing he did to make money. And Umm Fadl is there, who is said to be the second woman to become Muslim, by the way. Right? So she's there, he's there, and they're hearing about this. They're listening to the story Abu Sufyan tells Abu Lahab about this defeat and how Abu Sufyan describes these large figures on horses. And they're hearing all of this and they're happy. They're hearing the names of who got cut down and these chieftains who were defeated. And then when Abu Rafi hears about these large men, he can't contain himself anymore. He's, kind of, he's a secret Muslim. He lets out, he shouts out, Those are angels. Those are malaika. So Abu Lahab hears this. And out of anger, Abu Lahab goes over to Abu Rafir and smacks him on the face. And then, tumbling over, Abu Lahab grabs Abu Rafir and slams him to the ground. Think of a, almost a body slam. He slams him to the ground. He is taking advantage of the fact that his master Abbas is not there. He was captured. So the, the master is not there. Who's going to stop him? Right? So he's beating up Abu Rafir, who expressed his happiness by saying, those were the angels. Because right? it's, a, it's a bitter experience for Abu Lahab to hear about all of these people to get cut down in battle. Only for Abu Rafir to express joy and say, those are the angels. So he beats Abu Rafir. And at that time, Umm Fadl, she defends the servant of Abbas, her husband. She grabs a tent stake, goes over to Abu Lahab and smacks him in the head with it. Smacks him in the head. This causes a large gash on his head. This is before, uh, this is, jihad was permitted, but this was a, a delicate situation, to say the least. And Umm Fadl strikes him out of anger and to defend Abu Rafir. She says to Abu Lahab, you uh, take advantage of him, seeing as his master is absent. He's not here. So you're taking advantage of the situation. So she smacks him, causes this cut, 
embarrassed, Abu Lahab goes away. He gets out of there. But soon after this, he got affected by some kind of mysterious illness. Now the ulama of Sirah, they don't know exactly what this mystery illness was. Some of them speculated that it might have been smallpox. Others say that it was parasite, some kind of parasite, parasitic infection that was in his body. Uh, we could speculate too and say that maybe he caught some kind of infectious disease and that his weakened immune system coupled with this gash, maybe the gash got infected. So that coupled with the sickness led to him dying of this mystery illness seven days after he got hit in the head. So he got hit in the head. Now, it's not directly attributed to the hit, to the, to the gash. Otherwise, there would be issues of blood money and tribal issues. It was ascribed to the illness, not to her hitting him. Right? And this is why the sons of Abu Lahab didn't want to immediately bury the body. They were scared to bury the body of their father because they were afraid of catching this uh, infectious disease, this mystery illness that he got. So the, the Sira accounts mention that seven days later, when he died, the sons, they are still waiting, you know, days after he died, until people came to them and said, what's wrong with you? Don't you feel any shame? You're the sons of this man, and you just let your father's body remain in the house, decomposing day after day? And their answer was, well, we're afraid of catching this disease that he got. But eventually, some people joined with them, and they went and got some water, went inside of the house, and they threw the water on Abu Lahab's body. It's kind of a, a kind of a ghusl, if you want to look at it that way, to remove whatever's on him. They, they splash him with water. They go in carefully and remove the body, but they're not about to do any of the funeral procedures of washing the body or shrouding it or anything like that. They don't want to be around the corpse for too long because they're afraid of catching whatever he had. So the hadith mentions that after they did that rudimentary washing, they take the body to an area of Mecca, to this, it said the edge of Mecca, but it doesn't specify the exact area. But they toss him off this kind of cliff or precipice, right? You could think, Mecca has lots of hills and mountains, so they throw him off this area uh, in, in a place where people you know, weren't around to dispose of the body. And then they took rocks and tossed the rocks over the cliff to, to cover the body, over, you know, to cover this corpse. And there is a narration found in the Mustadrak of Imam al-Hakim and Imam al-Bayhaqi's Dala'ir al-Nubuwa, it mentions that later in the Seerah, after the conquest of Mecca, after the Muslims of Medina are going for Hajj uh, and spending some time in Mecca, the, the Muhajirun, it mentions in one narration that uh, Sayyida Aisha radiallahu anha, when she was in Mecca several years later, she was in that area where Abu Lahab's body was buried. And whenever she would walk past that area, she would shroud herself with her shawl and cover herself 
and quickly go through that area. She didn't want to be near it. Think about that, because this is an individual, a bitter enemy of the best of creation, Sayyiduna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the enemies, there's levels of enemies. There's levels. This is the worst of the worst, or one of the worst of the worst. So evil is he, Allah Ta'ala reveals a chapter in the Qur'an dedicated to condemning him to hell. So here she is walking by his, his, the area he's buried, and she hurries past it, because this is a mal'oon individual. He's cursed. So she doesn't want to be near it. So that's the first, these are some of the early incidents that happened in Mecca when people got word of this crushing defeat suffered uh, at Badr. Now Ibn Ishaq, in his seerah, he records a narration that as news of the defeat spread across Meccan society, voices in every household began to wail. You know, women folk from every household began to wail. In Arabic, we call this niyaha. And niyaha is haram in Islam. In our sharia, niyaha is forbidden. It's the screaming and wailing. Often it accompanies uh, slapping the cheeks and tearing the clothes and pulling the hair. Uh, and it was, it was a very well-known practice in jahiliyyah to the point that there were women who would hire their services for niyaha. You pay them money and they come to the funeral of your loved one. They don't even know who your loved one is, but you pay them the money and they do the niyaha as a, a performative exercise. They show up to your funeral, the funeral of that person, and they make themselves cry and they slap themselves and tear their clothes and pull their hair because somehow this adds to the prestige of the person who's being buried showing that, oh, he is loved. He will be so sorely missed. Look at how people are so pained at his loss. Anyhow, as news begins to spread throughout Meccan society, you can hear the niyaha, the wailing of many women folk in the homes. And it mentions that when Abu Sufyan, the now de facto leader of the Meccans. When he hears of this, he issues a, an order. Basically, he gathers the different chiefs and different people, the elites, and he issues this order to be implemented across Mecca, saying from now on, no one is allowed to wail. No one is allowed to wail. He says, we don't want the Muslims to gain any pleasure from our wailing. Why is this? Because we have this concept known as shamata shamatatul a'da you know let's say you, you have an enemy a bitter enemy who's done you wrong for most of your life and you really hate this person and something bad happens to them whatever it could be right maybe they get thrown in jail maybe someone hurts them really badly Shamata would be for you to hear that and gloat and express happiness and joy at their pain, their imprisonment, their injury, whatever it is. You're happy now. Like, aha, they had it coming. Oh, I'm happy. They got their just desserts. 
that is gloating at the defeat or suffering of one of your enemies. And this is blameworthy. It's blameworthy. You can be happy that Allah Ta'ala defeated oppressors, but you don't gloat. There's a difference between saying, Alhamdulillah, Allah defeated oppressors, and gloating about it. Because with that comes, there's some ego in that. Right? So Abu Sufyan didn't want the Muslims to have that feeling that they might have had were they, were they victorious. He didn't want anyone to think, oh, look, they're so devastated. All oh, their women are just crying in the houses. You could hear it across the whole city. So he said, no, no one can wail. It is banned. So, why are so many people wailing? Why are so many people wailing? Because every single household either has a family member who was killed or a family member captured or they are a direct relative killed or captured in battle. Another way of looking at it is the people are wailing in the houses because the dream came true. What dream are we talking about? We're talking about the dream that was seen by Atika bint Abdul Muttalib. Remember in the lead up to Badr we talked about this dream. Abu Sufyan, if you remember, he sent Damdam ibn Amr al-Ghifari to travel to Mecca in order to deliver this warning that the Muslims were assembling and they're armed and they're going to fight us to rouse Quraysh to gather their arms and come and defend him. But three days before Damdam arrives, remember we mentioned the dream of Atika ibn uh, Abdul Muttalib. Atika had this dream and she tells Abbas this dream. And of course Abbas confides the dream and then it spreads. But the dream, what does she say about the dream? She said that she saw that in three days a crier will come to Mecca racing on his camel. And first he goes to the Kaaba and he cries out, O traitors, you will meet your death in three days from now. And then she sees this person on top of the Kaaba saying the same thing. And then she sees the person on top of Abu Qubay's mountain crying the same thing. Oh, you traitors, in three days from now you're going to meet your death. She says in the dream that after that the crier picked up a huge rock from Abu Qubay's mountain and throws it down the mountain. It cracks at the base and it keeps rolling until it hits every single house in Mecca. Imagine a single stone rolling down a mountain and hitting every single house in Mecca. That's the dream. What does that mean? It means that Badr is going to affect every single household in Mecca. That defeat is going to be felt in every single household in Mecca. So when the people are wailing in all of the houses of Mecca, that is the dream of Atika coming true. Exactly what she saw. And Abu Sufyan banned this so that no one would gloat in their defeat. So we talked about the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims returning from Badr to Medina. We've talked now about some the, the non-Muslims, the Kuffar of Quraysh, the Mushrikun, arriving back in Mecca 
and the news of the defeat spreading through the city. But there's other people besides the Muslims and besides the Mushrikun uh, who are coming to know about the outcome of this battle. And we have some very interesting narrations recorded in the Sira literature. One of them is about someone we've learned about in the past, an individual by the name or the title of An-Najashi. Who is the Najashi? The Najashi, that's an honorific title for the ruler of the Aksum Empire of Abyssinia. So the Najashi finds out that the Muslims were victorious at Badr. And in Ibn Hisham, Sira, and other Sira works, uh, this actually goes back to Dalad Nabuwa, Bayhaqi records this. Um, it mentions that Najashi finds out about the victory of Badr. And it's a very interesting narration because it also sheds light on Najashi's history and his own ties to Arabia. A lot of people don't know this, that Najashi has ties to Arabia before he was the emperor. So in the hadith recorded by Bayhaqi, it mentions that when news reached Abyssinia about the Muslim victory at Badr, Najashi called for Jafar radiallahu anhu and told Jafar the news and also listed out the names of the various chiefs of Quraysh that were slain in battle. You can imagine Jafar. Subhanallah, he remains there with those Muslims for so many years. Najashi calls him, tells him, they were victorious at Badr, and so-and-so was killed, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. The, the actual narration reads, Najashi says to him, they met in a valley called Badr, full of arak trees. What is an arak tree? Siwak. You all know the siwak. We call it siwak, miswak. The siwak comes from a particular tree called the arak tree. And the arak tree is all through Arabia. It's throughout the Yemen. I'm sure it's other places as well. And the miswak that we use, that's actually coming from underground, the root system. You have the branches of the tree itself. They're different from the miswak that's at the root. They look different. Anyhow, he says, they met in a valley called Badr, full of arak trees. He says, it's as though I can see it now. I used to graze a camel in that valley for my master, a man of, of Banu Damra. This is Najashi talking. What's going on here? He is telling Jafar the background of his own life because the hadith mentions that apparently when Najashi was a young boy he was captured in Abyssinia taken, enslaved and was under a person from Banu Damra he was basically owned as a slave by an Arab man of Banu Damra and he worked as a young boy tending to this camel in the very valley of Badr. So when news comes back to him now, years later, of this victory at Badr, he actually has recollections of this valley. So he's relating to Jafar this victory, and it's as if he's uh, 
reimagining what the place looked like from his memories as a young boy there. So subhanAllah, Allah gave victory to the Muslims in the very same valley the Najashi was in many, many years before as a young boy. So that news traveled to Abyssinia. Other things were going on too. So we have the victory of Badr, the news of that victory spreading to Abyssinia, but there were other things going on at the same time as Badr. We go to the hadith recorded by Imam Tirmidhi. And this hadith mentions that on the same day as the battle of Badr, the Rom and the Furs were engaged in battle to the north. Who are the Furs? The Persian Empire, the Sassanid Empire. Who are the Rom? In that time, the Rom were the Byzantines, the Byzantine Empire. So the Hadith in Tirmidhi says that on the same day as the victory of Badr, the Persian Empire, the Persians and the Romans were engaged in battle, and unexpectedly, the Persians suffered a defeat, and the Byzantines were victorious. So there were two victories that day. There was the victory of the Rom and the victory of the Muslims. What's going on here and what is the background to this? So to put this in context, we actually have to go backwards a little bit. We have to go back to the Meccan period to the sixth or seventh year after the revelation of the Quran in Mecca. In the sixth or seventh year after the revelation of the Quran, Allah Ta'ala revealed Surah Rum the chapter named after the Byzantines. And in that chapter, in the very beginning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alif lam mim ghulibat rum fi adana al-ard wa hum min ba'di ghalabihim sayaghribun fi bid'i sinin lillahi al-amru min qablu wa min ba'du wa yawma idhin yafrahu al-mu'minun bi nasri Allah yansuru man yasha wa huwa al-aziz al-rahim so in Surah Rum, which was revealed in either the sixth or the seventh year after the beginning of Revelation, right? So this is a few years before the Hijrah. When that ver- when these verses were revealed, it's about a defeat that the Ro- the, the Byzantines suffered. Allah Taala says, "Alif Lamim," the Byzantines have been defeated in the nearest land, but they after their defeat, will overcome. They'll be victorious. In a few years. It doesn't say exactly how many years. In a few years. And to Allah belongs the command before and after. And that day, the believers will rejoice in the victory of Allah. He gives victory to whom He wills, and He is the Almighty and the Merciful. So this was revealed in the 6th or 7th year uh, in the Meccan period and it was talking about a defeat the Byzantines suffered at the hands of the Persian Empire. So they were fighting. The Persians defeated them. Now when you go to the tafsir, you find some very interesting narrations. 
One narration says that when these verses were revealed and recited by the Muslims, Ubay bin Khalaf, who was killed at Badr, by the way, Ubay bin Khalaf mocked Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu for reciting these verses. Think about it. They have all this power in Meccan society, and the Muslims are weak and downtrodden, and here they are reciting verses where Allah is saying that the, the Byzantines were defeated, but in a few years they're going to be victorious. So Ubay bin Khalaf begins to make fun of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and mock him. He says, do you think the Byzantines will defeat the Persians after their crushing defeat? Abu Bakr says, of course. Because it's kalamullah. It's the words of Allah Ta'ala. Allah says they're going to be defeated. They're going to be defeated. Allah says the Byzantines will win. They will win. In a few years. So Ubay says to Abu Bakr, okay then, let's make a bet. Abu Bakr says, okay. Ubay says, in how many years will the Byzantines be victorious over the Persians? Now, if you had to pick a number, what would you pick? The verse doesn't say how many years. It says, fi bidu'i sinin. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he says, in six years. Why does he say six years? Because in Arabic, if you say fi bidu'i sinin, bidu' is between, it's like between five and nine, six and nine. So he picks six. And guess what happened? Six years go by. This is the twelfth year. And what happens? Nothing. There's no battle. So in six years, there's no battle between the Persians and the Byzantines. Ubay goes to Abu Bakr and he says, pay up. And Abu Bakr, he pays up. Now, of course, this is before betting is made haram. The verse about Maysir and these things, that was revealed later in Medina. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he paid up. Now, that's because Bidr Isinin is between six and nine, right? So he picked the lower end, said six. But if you fast forward to the Battle of Badr, during the day of the Battle of Badr, Ubay ibn Khalif is slain, he's killed in battle. And on the same day the Muslims are victorious at Badr, the Byzantines are victorious against the Persians. So Bidr-i Sinin is between six and nine years, and victory came to the Byzantines after eight and a half years. Eight and a half years. So from the moment the ayat were revealed in Surah Rum to the victory at Badr and the victory there, between the Byzantines and Persians. That was eight and a half years. So but in Fibidr Isinin is up to nine. This is eight and a half. And ironically, the same day that the Byzantines defeated the Persians, Ubay bin Khalif was killed at Badr. So what's going on here? We know from the narrations that the Persians had defeated the Byzantines in the sixth year after Revelation. And when we look at the tafsir of these verses in Surah Rum, we find the narrations describing the Prophet ﷺ very saddened at the defeat of the Byzantines to the Persians. 
he was very sad that the Byzantines, who are Ahlul Kitab, who are Christians, were defeated by the Fors, the Persian Empire, who were Mushrikun. On the other hand, the Mushrikun of Quraysh were very happy that the Persian Empire defeated the Byzantine Empire in that sixth year. And the hadith says it is because they were mushrikun like Quraysh are mushrikun. So they wanted their fellow mushriks to be victorious over Ahlul Kitab. That's what the hadith says. Imam al-Tabari, he records that some of Quraysh said, you Muslims are people of a book, as are the Jews and as are the Christians. But we do not have a scripture, and our brothers, the Furs, the Persians, are also without a scripture, and they have defeated your brothers, the Byzantines, the Rome. And if we ever fight you, we're going to defeat you as well. So our brothers defeated those people of a scripture, and we're going to defeat you, you people who have a scripture. That's what they would say to the Prophet wasallam. So what that shows you is the victory of the Byzantines over the Persians was directly tied with the victory of the Muslims against the Mushrikun at Badr. They are related because Allah Ta'ala reveals in Surah Rum that the Byzantines will be victorious up to nine years. It was eight and a half years. And Allah Ta'ala also says, On that day, يَوْمَ إِذِنْ يَفْرَحُ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ بِنَصْرِ اللَّهِ The believers will be joyous at the victory of Allah. Now, this is joyous at the victory of Allah. They're, on that day, were they happy? Were they joyful? They were. Because Allah gave them victory over Quraysh. And when the news arrived that the Byzantines defeated the Persians, they're also happy with that too. So the farah of the believers is connected to Badr as well as the Byzantines defeating the Persians in that battle, which happened on the same day. So these things are tied together, in, albeit indirectly, but they're tied together. The Prophet ﷺ wanted the Christians from the Byzantines to defeat the Persians who were idol worshippers. We also find in the Shema'il, the hadith stating that the Prophet ﷺ would prefer to be in accord with some of the external practices of Ahlul Kitab unless there was something specific revealed to him going against those things. And likewise, we know of the hadith which speak of the future alliance but between the Rum and the Muslims at the end of time. So there's connections here. The Muslims were victorious at Badr, and on the same day, the Byzantine Empire was victorious against the Mushrikun from the Persian Empire. So that day in general for the whole region was a very joyful day for people of Scripture, for Muslims as well as Ahlul Kitab in general. Now, there's a hadith that is recorded by Imam Muslim from Al-Mustawrid Al-Qurashi. Al-Mustawrid Al-Qurashi said in front of Amr bin As 
I heard the Prophet ﷺ say that the hour, the final hour will not come until the Rum are in the majority. The Rum, the people of Rum will be in the majority. Amr bin As, he says, be careful of what you say. And then Mustawrid said, uh, he said, I heard it from the Messenger of Allah So then Amr says, if you say this, then indeed the Rum have four virtues. The Rum have four virtues. Number one, he says, they are the most forbearing of people in times of tribulation. They're the most forbearing of people in times of tribulation, meaning when hard times come, they have the greatest tolerance and longevity and ability to deal with hard times. Number two, he said, they are quicker to recover from affliction. If a disaster strikes, if something bad happens, they are quicker than others in getting back up and recovering from that. Number three, he says, they are the fastest to attack after a retreat. Even if they are in a battle and they're forced to retreat, of, of all peoples, they are the fastest to regroup and come back into the battle and start again. And number four, he says, they are the best towards the poor, towards the orphans and the feeble. And then he added a fifth quality. He says, and they have a fifth good and beautiful quality. They are the strongest in checking the tyranny of kings. They're the strongest and most formidable people in checking the tyranny, the oppression of kings. So who are these Rum? We talked a bit about them in navigating the eschaton in the class on the signs of the day of judgment. And for more detail, you can refer to that particular class where we talked about the hadith regarding the Rum at the end of time. But who are the Rum? When we look at the chapter in the Quran, Surah Rum, we would translate Rum here as the Byzantines. But who are the Byzantines? And where are they today? And the hadith to describe the Rum, to whom do these hadith apply? The Byzantines, the Rum, according to the classical ulama of Ilm al-Nasab, the classical genealogist, and according to the classical scholars of the Arabic language, the Rum are descendants of Esau ibn Ya'qub. So they are descendants of Esau, the son of Ya'qub, who went west and from whom the Romans slash Byzantines are known to descend. So the Rome are not just a particular civilization that rose and eventually fell, such as the Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire. No, it's not just speaking about an empire, it's speaking about an actual human stock. So the descendants of Esau ibn Ishaq, who are they? They are basically the Rum identified with the Byzantines in the time of the Prophet. Those who inherited the Roman Empire 
which split into the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. We know the Western Roman Empire eventually fell due to the barbarian invasions and the hordes, but the Eastern Roman Empire survived for much longer until it eventually fell at the hands of whom? Anyone know his name? Muhammad al-Fatih, rahimahullah. So that Byzantine Empire was the Eastern Roman Empire. But the people who survived that collapse remain. That human stock we call the, the Rum, the Rumis. What's the famous poet's name? Jalal al-Din al-Rumi. So the Rumi are broadly uh, people in Byzantium. So this could include... Uh, northern Syria, large swaths of Turkey, not all of Turkey, because you have the Turkic people as their own human stock, but the Anatolians, uh, Europeans in general are descendants of Isa bin Ishaq. So the Rome would be European peoples in the broadest sense as a human stock. So these virtues are tied not to a particular temporal empire but they're tied to that particular people right and the victory that Allah Ta'ala gave to the Rum was celebrated and the Muslims were happy about it because it was a victory given to Ahlul Kitab over people who were idol worshippers so the Byzantine Empire of course eventually fell. The Muslims were the ones who basically helped that along. Allah gave victory to the Muslims, but the human stock remained. So what came of that human stock? From that human stock, you have who we call Al-Uthman. Al-Uthman, also known as the Adawlatul Uthmaniya or the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire was, by and large, it was, this was a Rumi Empire. And this is why you have many ulama who talk about the people of Rome and the virtues of Rome, and they're talking about the Ottoman Empire. For example, Imam uh, Shihabuddin al-Hamawi, uh, who died near 11, uh, 1050 Hijra, he wrote a book called Ad-Durru al-Manzum, which is a collection about the virtues of the Rum, whom he identifies as Adar Uthman or the Ottoman Empire. But he mentions the words of other ulama who said that includes uh, other peoples from the Rum, even those who haven't yet become Muslim. Ibn Kathir, for instance, he says, when looking at the verses and the hadith about the Rum, he says that these hadith indicate that many from the Rum will later embrace Islam and perhaps play a very pivotal role at the end of time. So this is very interesting when you think about da'wah, when you think about people who receive the message of Islam who are from the land, the Rumi lands, you know. The Rumi lands are wherever the Rum ended up settling, right? So in, in that sense, Turkey, uh, the area, Europe broadly, you could even include uh, North America, Canada, New Zealand, as the, the numerical majority are descendants of that human stock, the Rumi stock, descendant from Isa bin Ishaq.
So the Prophet ﷺ was very happy at this victory that coincided with the victory Allah gave the Muslims at Badr. And we find that Najashi is informed of this victory and others are finding out about this victory because it's no small thing that this new community were vastly outnumbered and out-equipped, yet Allah gave them a very decisive victory. That news spread. So alhamdulillah, we've pretty much reached the conclusion of our discussion on all matters related to Badr. But the after effects of Badr lead to Uhud. And between Badr and Uhud is just a short amount of time with a few things happening, which we'll be getting to in the next week or two, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa